You're listening to the Fringe Legal Podcast. This is a show for lawyers and law firm leaders. I'm your host, Ab. In each episode, I talk with technologists, key players, and experts to help you navigate the changing landscape that is the legal profession. If you're looking for strategies, learn about trending topics, and get updates from the experts, then this is the place for you. Let's get to it. So, Paul, thank you very much for joining me today for this recording of the Fringe Legal Podcast. But I suppose the best way to get started would be to understand how you came to be in the legal profession and what do you do now? Hi, Ab, and thanks for having me on your podcast. It's really great to talk to you. In terms of my past and how I got into legal and things, yeah, it's a long story, a long convoluted story. But most of my life, in my working life at least, I've worked with technology and I've kind of divided my time between technology providers, if you like, and user organizations. The majority of that's actually been in the financial services industry. I worked in investment banking and insurance for a long time. And actually, I got into legal because one of the world's largest law firms, I guess, one of the world's most successful law firms, Freshfields Brookhouse Deringer, was looking for a CIO, a global CIO, and they kind of came and found me. And I was very lucky and very fortunate to be given the opportunity to lead the IT function there and actually the whole change function that they had there at the time. And that was that was a real eye-opener for me because coming from an industry which has a lot of transactional data where it's all about strictly defined transactions, you know, financial services, into an industry where there's a lot of what a financial services person would call unstructured data, you know, text, things that human beings can understand, and really changes what the needs are of technology. It's not analogous in any way, really. The example I always use is if you're, you know, if you're running infrastructure or technology in a in a high fast, high paced, fast moving environment like an investment bank, if the email system goes down, it's a huge deal and everybody's really, really annoyed and they want it back up as soon as possible. But you can still keep doing work in general. If the same thing happens to a, a law firm, you're not doing work. You know, the law firms pretty much exchange information via email. And then if you think back into technology history and realize that email kind of comes out of the precursors to the internet and that those things weren't designed to be reliable, they were designed to be resilient, meaning to survive failures rather than to actually reliably deliver in a determined time, anything or at any time. So you see a real different contrast in how you have to deal with technology problems when you're dealing with interactions between human beings that have been facilitated by text, if you like, or rather than strictly defined transactions that can be dealt with by machines. Yeah, that's really interesting. So what was the, I suppose, what, what, what appealed, other than someone reaching out to you, what was the appeal of the legal profession for you? And what was that transition like? Because, I mean, it it sounds like they're related, but also in some ways, very different worlds. How was that transition for you? Yeah, so the, the appeal is very interesting. I think I've always been interested in the law, as it were. I often wonder if I did the right university course, and maybe I should have been a lawyer. 
when I, <laughs> yeah, yeah, in my in my roles, I've often been the person that's been naturally drawn into a lot of commercial transactions, a lot of contract work, even though I've been the IT guy. It's just seemed to be ham to me. So I have some sort of, I think, natural affinity to it. I'm not sure that means I'm good at it, but I have some natural affinity to it. The transition is a big one. You know, coming from an organization that I did that had close on 100,000 employees to even a big law firm that has 6,000 employees, but 450 of those people are partners who are owners of the place is very, very different. And that partnership culture and the way it drives law firms and the way they are is the biggest thing to get used to, frankly. I mean, I was lucky in that I was kind of brought in by some partners who had some specific things that they wanted doing in the space I was in and had spent the time to be educated in what they needed and I hope made a good decision in hiring me. And, you know, and I had a lot of support. And But I remember on my first day, the, the managing director of the firm, he said to me, you need to come to Germany with me tomorrow. <laughs> Uh, you need to meet partners. The first 90 days of your job is really about meeting partners. So can you come to mm. Germany tomorrow? And I think that kind of organizational structure and how it drives how law firms work is fundamental to understand. And I think if you do that, the other skills that you have can be valuable. One of the things that was very necessary in that job for me was actually to, to kind of do a technology catch-up and an organizational catch-up to bring a team along. And I'd done those things in other places, and I'm sure that's one of the reasons I was hired. But doing that in the same way you would do it in a large multinational corporation is not going to succeed. You know, law firms are great places to work, I think, but they do have a different kind of culture. And in fact, now that I know a lot more of them, I realize that they're pretty different to each other often as well. Yeah, and I mean, that, that's really interesting considering, you know, you say you had this affinity towards law, and I wonder if you did choose the right undergraduate degree at university but what do you think so there, I mean there's two segues I want to sort of dive into and two interesting things you've mentioned one is the huge shift in you know working in a 100,000 employee firm or even a 10,000 employee firm or business compared to a, a law firm that has 450 owners and the second is around why you might have been hired so i you know i presume you did a good job you were at freshfield for five years so that's good you did these did a good job for five years but what do you think so let's actually let's pick up on that why do you think you were hired as someone you know who wasn't in legal you know you're still a leader of a business and certainly in a commercial banking space but it is different from a law firm and the tenure that you might serve in a law firm. What, what, was, what do you think was the reason for you being selected over others? Over others, I don't know. That's a, you'd have to ask the people that hired sure. you. But yeah, the, of course. But <laughs> they were very yeah. much looking for someone from outside legal. They wanted a different perspective, and they, and they weren't just doing it in technology. They actually brought in a head of marketing and KM and a head of HR from outside legal as well. So they were really, there was, a, there was a group of partners that were in management positions that had convinced the rest of the partnership, and those who know law firms know how important that piece is, that they needed to be a bit radical at that moment in time. And they weren't in any kind of crisis. In fact, it was their most successful period ever. And I think there were, I think there's good insight there. You know, when, when you're on a roll, is the time when you can maybe take a bit of a risk because you might think you need to look for change and different ways of working, but that's always risky. And, you know, 
I'll probably come back to this when we talk about how I see law changing now. But the fact that you have to get ready for the bad times in the good times is prudent business. So I think that's why I was brought in or someone like me was brought in. And I hope they I hope they thought it was a good thing in the end. As you say, I stayed there five and a half years and <laughs> you know, did some did some things I'm proud of. I hope they're proud of them too. <laughs> <laughs> sure. And I mean, do you do you think that the strategy and the insight they had into hiring so many people from outside of law, at least in you know, in the time that you were there, that was a successful strategy. Uh, you may not be able to talk about the full details of it, but overall what what do you think? How, how do you think that panned out? So this is this is where it's very hard to be objective for me. I think law firms have a habit of getting under your skin in a good way. You know, if anybody if I talk to anybody now about law firms, if I talk about fresh fields, I always somewhere in the conversation or sometimes explicitly and immediately say the best law firm in the world. It was a great place to work. And it's very difficult for me to disentangle the the way they treat their people, the way they treated me, what they do and how they do it from any particular strategy, actually. And I think other people that I know have spent a long time at other law firms feel the same about those law firms. I think there is you know, very often, and obviously not for everybody in every circumstance, but very often law firms do a very good job of getting the best from their people. That's kind of makes it difficult to make that objective. Was it a good strategy decision? Of course, you know, I was hired in 2008 at the real peak of the economy. And I joined <laughs> in early 2009 when everyone thought the world was going to end. So the strategy, you know, as they say, no plan survives contact with the enemy. I'm pretty sure that was true, too. You know, my, my first job was to save 15%, right? And, and I guess they were hiring someone from outside because they thought they probably would invest. So, the, so you know, there's those parts to it as well. The real world intrudes on the best laid plans. But as I said, I think it's just very difficult to disentangle the different things. Do you think that, and actually we'll come on to this and towards the end actually in the last segment, but I do want to actually briefly talk about what were some of the things that you learned in the five years that you were there, five and a bit years you were at the firm? I'm assuming, you know, past the transition period, past getting to know the 450 partners and business owners and so on, traveling, constantly meeting people. What were the key takeaways, lessons that maybe have either, uh, some I'm sure probably have stuck with you now, some that I'm sure you try and pass on to others. What was some of the key highlights from your point of view? I think there's, there's some funny things you learn. You learn some big picture things and you learn some little things. I think I'm much more respectful of giving people time to talk and listening to people in a in a very practical way in meetings now. That was something I really learned there. I came from environments where sometimes there was a bit of a syndrome of the kind of smartest guy in the room thing going on can happen in financial services. And you deal with that in a particular way. I think one of the things you learn from being around a lot of experienced and knowledgeable lawyers is that quite often you should just listen. And that's a very tiny piece of kind of almost coaching that I learned there, but that I always remember being sort of realizing pretty quickly during that initial transition period. I think the other things, obviously, I learned, I, I learned a lot about the mechanics of how a law firm works and a lot about how the industry works, how you get and retain clients, you know, what's really important to, to improve why clients pay their bill and what bits of the bill they don't like. All of the things that kind of a technologist in, an, in any industry needs to know about that industry in order to 
know the the right place to deploy the scarce resources because fortunately when you work in it you're always in the position of having more good ideas than time and more good ideas than money so you're always prioritizing and you know being able to know enough about the mechanics of the business what makes the business successful and also the strategy of the business where it's going where it wants to grow where it doesn't care about growing where it's just you know using something as a cash cow if you know mm. those things you can you can steer the business but that's a kind of generic skill and maybe something i was hired for because that's that is what i've done in a lot of places that that kind of glue right. being the glue between the technology and the business if you like and i think you know listening to that i would almost segment the skills into you know personal personal development almost for lack of a better word type skills right like listening to people but also more business focused strategic things like understanding the mechanics of the business the law firm the strategic aspect of where the business might want to go for those that may not be and i'm asking this for a very selfish reason you know if me or anybody else or someone who's basically a newly hired cio it director in an it leadership position or any sort of leadership position how do you think they can learn those skills other than just doing it and learning it relatively over time how can they actually spend time and work on those things improving both the personal and the business side of things so i think hopefully in in the modern era anybody that gets to a kind of management position has had some kind of management training it's not always true especially with it people and it can be true in other professions as well you know people get a, promoted on on the basis of their technical ability mm-hmm. as opposed to their people skills and that's not ideal but hopefully there is some training one of the things that i think is crucial in developing any organization and everything's about people right and um, you don't get anything done without people one thing that's really crucial is actually investing in those people and actually sitting down and figuring out which part of the organization that you're responsible for so if i'm a cio which part of it is the part that's really not working the best you know and that doesn't that's not necessarily a function it could be a layer of management you know you often find that first level managers have just been promoted for their capabilities right you know you promote the best qa person to lead qe qa you put the best developer to lead development that may not have been the smartest thing to do it's very common those people you can often get huge bang for your buck by investing in those people and by doing that by actually making a case for that and developing people if you put yourself through that process and invest yourself into that process they have expertise about the business there and you learn about the business they get some management training you kind of get a kind of self reinforcing spiral of improvement in the business you know and even recently in my in my role the terra microsystems you we went through a merger you know people observed of me and said to me wow you you make go out of your way to kind of meet a lot of people and yes i do because everybody knows something and they're coming from different perspectives and being able to bring them together with what you know and together within themselves is just something where you get a kind of multiplier effect and i really believe that very strongly and it's 
something I did at Freshfields. We had a lot to do around turning around an IT team there. And we put in place something that we called Weevolution, actually, which is sort of <laughs> trying to say us evolving ourselves in one sure. word, right? <laughs> and it was hugely successful in terms of getting people's buy-in to the mission we were on. And those are things that anyone can do in any organization while they're learning about the organization and the mechanics of a business themselves. The other thing I used to do in law firms, because it was my first law firm, I just used to spend maybe half a day a month, maybe a day a month, and not necessarily with one person, but I just go and sit in the office of a partner or a lawyer, I'd obviously get their permission, and just see how they work every day. Mm. Literally see how they use the computer systems, how they talk on the phone with people, what they're working on, how focused they are, how multitask they are, what they use the technology for, and, you know, I don't know, there's, there's other hobby you can have if you're a technology. You know, you can watch how people use Microsoft Office and everybody uses it differently. Yeah, right? and, and that's such a good um, point because I think there's so much you can learn from, because especially in some ways, depending on your role and, you know, how senior you might be, you might be really far disconnected from how people are using the technology versus what you intend and assume on how they might use it. So that's such a useful exercise yeah. to be able to just sit, observe, and learn what that is i mean beyond that do you think there's other ways because you know everything you've said is great and that's a very nice rosy picture of course it doesn't always turn out that way and one of the things that i've observed and learned in some way is people are often certainly leaders are often some depending on you know how confident they are if they're a new leader and so on a little bit scared sometimes to go and test their assumptions because there, especially in law firms, to some degree, there is a stigma attached to failing or not doing well, or whatever it might be. You know, how do you think a leader can approach that, or a manager can approach that, in I suppose in a safe way, where you know they can actually reap the rewards of testing out a hypothesis rather than just saying, "Oh, I failed; that didn't work out." Is that something that you had to do in your role? Yeah, I think it's a really good point. We're all on LinkedIn and we see all of these wonderful things on LinkedIn where it says, you know, you should be worried if your best people go quiet, you know, and everybody should be able to say what they think. Businesses are more constrained than that and individuals are more constrained than that. I think the point you make is very valid. You know, you have to have some things that you can do in that first 90 days, first 100 days. Yeah, so, you know, from when you get the job to when you start, you have to reach out, read things, talk things. I was very lucky when I joined Freshfields in that they were open enough with me to share and invite me into meetings. I was working in Europe and I was on six months' notice from my previous job. Wow. Um, so they were so <laughs> that's unheard of in, that, in the US. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. And well and my and my previous employer wanted to make it a year. <laughs> but I negotiated that <laughs> away. But but during that period I managed to get the two organizations to agree that they were so different that it didn't matter if I was kind of involved in some of the forums and decision making sure. and in Freshfield. So I, I got I got a kind of seat at the table but no real influence yet in some of the, the key forums and that was very valuable for me. But but you still have to, when you when your feet hit the ground, people still do expect a little bit of instant solution from you. And I think it's very valuable if you're starting a new role anywhere that you do have that, you know, within the first, actually, as I said, probably in your mind before you join, but you need to verify it. You have to have a 90-day, 100-day plan that actually achieves something that you can measure, that you can talk about, and that maybe shows people that you have a bit of, guts without being reckless 
Yeah. And that can be, you know, that can be based on what you've been asked to do during the, the hiring process. And the risk there is, of course, that when people are hiring, they're often they often have aspirations that, that they believe the organization can achieve, but it haven't been validated that the organization mm. can achieve. So you have to you have to be careful as well. But it's it's you know, it's something you can I think as I said, simple. Just have some things that you think you can achieve that are based on what you've been asked to do and then talk to all the right people and validate them. You know, I call them the usual suspects. You know, as I said, Law Firm Rosane had 450 owners. There were probably 30 to 50 of those 450 who were very willing to engage in conversations about what technology should be doing in the firm. The other partners were interested because they did see technology as a kind of basic thing that they all needed to use but it was more of a utility to them and they were more interested in was it working how much was it costing but there were a you know a substantial minority who were more in were also interested in how it could improve things and how it could change the way they were so there's a strategy there to try and i suppose win over those 30 to 40 to become your champions, your true influencers in, in, in that whatever technology yeah. you're talking about? Or would you try, do you think, to convince the mass of people who may not, who see the technology as utility, you know, what, what had better results? You have to, you know, any, any management role involves dealing with different stakeholders. Job one is to identify who the stakeholders are, and you can't treat all of them the same. In fact, each group of stakeholders has to be treated differently. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a there's a thing that you can cynically say about law firms and culture, which is that you know the culture comes from the partners and the support staff, business services people, whatever if you call them in different places, and the associates are just there for a period of time they kind of you know like they're visiting an educational establishment or something it's very cynical mm-hmm. but it's a kind of dividing people into stakeholders and 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 realizing you know every person has a different view about what short term medium term and long term is everyone has a different view about what's tactical and what's strategic right and everybody has a different view about the value the basic value of different things that are just necessary in a business you know people know that it is necessary in a business some people might think it's that's the limit of it it's a necessary evil almost (laughs) right other people might see it as a thing that's going to revolutionize the business you'll have those in all businesses it's that kind of you know people are on a spectrum from you know i call them keepers of the tradition they don't want to change anything through to i'll try anything new anytime i'm an early adopter most people are somewhere in the middle and where they are on a curve on that curve in on any particular issue is really influenced by their experience of the people who are coming and talking to them about that so if you're representing change which you generally are as an IT leader Mm -hmm. you have to have a different strategy for the different groups about how you educate them about the change and you have to be very open to changing course even if there's something that the organization sort of intellectually believes is the right thing to do if the organizational sort of culture isn't accepting of it you have to find a different way of achieving it or you maybe even have to abandon it. You know, I think that's a really good segue into talking about your role changing. So you obviously went from working at a law firm to joining a legal technology company. So what what was the story? What was the reason that happened? So you went from, you know, Latera and now what is Latera Microsystem? So yeah, tell me a little bit more about that transition period there from Freshfields or the yes. So at Freshfields, this this whole thing about bringing in people from outside the industry was 
openly talked about actually even right from the beginning during the hiring process as being a, a phase right so part of the task there was to build a group of successors and then move on and it wasn't explicit that you would move on within or, or outside the organization but if you're an IT person in a law firm it's kind of you, know, you could become the COO I guess but Frischels don't have one mm-hmm. of those so <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of it was it was kind of in a way kind of openly talked about through the whole time I was there as a as a not a fixed term right. thing because there were certain things to, to but there achieve, wasn't any but, stigma uh, attached not, to you having sort of potentially no. looking to move on at some point in the future no no and you know we reached a certain milestone and we'd done some pretty tough things actually and made some big changes and there were some successes that I'd kind of groomed if you like for one of a better word <laughs> yeah because it probably has very negative connotations that word now these days i'm sorry and you know the, the the partnership was able to choose between those and i did a handover which is this six month another six months actually <laughs> 12 months i did right so the six months i was still doing the job and the successor was known and then we flipped for six months so it was a very planned thing again i mean you know i have great respect for that organization it was they did it very well and i actually joined an organization I was a customer of, and that was largely because of the founder of that organization, a guy called Deepak Masand. And, and I'd known him. We had a very formal procurement, not process as in how we do contracts and negotiation, but I'd run procurement organizations in, in other other parts of my mm-hmm. career. And we did some things at Freshfields that were very structured, like we had supplier conferences to tell all of our suppliers on a level playing field what our strategy was, what we thought we were going to be doing, and what we wouldn't be doing. We had internal kind of mechanisms for measuring how well suppliers were doing. And we had kind of informal awards for who the best or worst suppliers were in any given 12-month period. And actually, Latera, in the whole time I was there, they came out one or number one or number two every year. Because of that, because I was ringing up their, <laughs> their founder and saying, congratulations, you've done this again. We, we got to know each other. And he was... He was reaching an age where he was thinking of what would happen to the company mm-hmm. next, and he wanted to bring in someone to kind of take over the the operation of it from himself because he was approaching retirement. And he offered me a job, and I don't know. It, it seemed like the right thing to do. It seems a huge change now. I mean, I moved from Europe to the U.S. with my whole family, really, you know, with only one good outcome, <laughs> which was that. I could successfully work with him and grow the business to a point where where we right. did. And and very sadly, as I think some people know, he passed away before he reached his retirement age. And I was kind of then running the business in the way he'd intended, but not in the manner he'd intended, I guess. I think he was hoping to still be around. And we were able to kind of, you know, take it forward from there, continue to grow it. And, and then we were very fortunate to meet up with a private equity firm called K1 that had already purchased microsystems and was looking to kind of build the first scaled out legal technology organization that addressed the whole of what we call like the document drafting lifecycle. So not storage of documents and things like that, but actually really the tools that help you work on the content. And since that had been sort of the mission of Latera anyway, and I think the mission of microsystems as well, it was a very natural fit. And the other two companies that were were brought in through that process, XREF and the Sackett Group, are really great additions in terms of the technology and the people and the experience they bring. So we ended up with a platform company, a PE you might call it, that is able to uniquely address a big chunk of what lawyers need to do in their day-to-day work. And I think the timing is great. 
because we have in the industry now you have a lot of basic change going on just plumbing kind of change you know you have microsoft changing the way they work and lawyers really work in that kind of world with more frequent updates and really not supporting things for years and years after they've stopped shipping them anymore mm. and you have increasingly rich stuff so you have that never-ending increase in the size of emails increase in the size of documents increase in the number of documents you have to s store so that kind of basic plumbing gets harder and harder each year and then on the flip side, you have all of these sexy new technologies coming along. And where we sit within Latera Microsystems is that we leverage the, the sexy new, we make the plumbing easy to do. But fundamentally, what we do is that we help people in the middle with the things they do every day and doing them better. And actually, we'll probably talk about that mm -hmm. later, but I think that has a very profound or can have a very profound influence on how people are able to innovate. Because I think execution and innovation are, are strategically linked, actually, in in ways that people don't sometimes. Yeah, think. and I mean, you recently wrote about this in in the Ilta peer to peer publication, and one of the things I noticed that you mentioned there was this need to shake up the traditional model of delivering services to the to the client. Actually, not to the law, not how a law firm works, but how they actually deliver services to their clients. And I suppose we can talk a lot more about sort of consolidating these technologies and ask some questions around that. But one of the things I wanted to get your take on was, do you think we're getting to a point as we have all of these things, all the plumbing, all the sexy new technologies and everything in the middle, that we're getting to a point of diminishing return where there's just, you can only put in so much and then it becomes a nuisance rather than a helpful utility. Do you think it's we're getting to that point and that's why the consolidation story and the you know the whole merger and everything else makes a lot more sense so that's the henry ford mm. faster horses thing right so you know henry ford would always say if he listened to his customers he would have found he would have been right. breeding faster horses yeah. not building cars right so the no i don't i think i think the the thing that about technology and and new technology or better technology is that it's there's a lot of hype and a lot of fashion in the technology industry. But putting that aside, technology comes in cycles and in waves. And certainly I've been very lucky in my career. You know, I, I kind of entered technology as probably the first, very first generation of people who could actually have it at home hmm. as well as at work. And by the time I retire, we may have gone <laughs> full circle so that actually the technology you have at home is so ubiquitous mm -hmm. that you don't really notice it. And that is the real transformation and the real disruption actually so the the initially people look at technology and they look at it in that sort of faster horses way they they think about how can i use this technology to do what i do now better how can i automate how can i increase productivity how can right. i do this if they're looking at incremental process um, improvement those, on what they already know rather than yeah. the un, the great unknown out there right yeah yeah and then that leads to the question about well how much of this can we do before it's not worth doing anymore but then someone comes along and uses that technology or a technology very close to it and does something truly disruptive and changes the game. And that's really where that comment about changing the way you deliver to customers rather than just improving the way you work comes from. So you have this, this kind of, and, and you never know what those things are, but they do happen. I mean, there's all sorts of cliched examples, you know, smartphones why didn't nokia invent the, the best smartphone right they had all the money all the market share mm. and some very smart people and they lost out completely there because they were incrementally improving something but that's you know if you look at the nokia story 
and there's lots been written about it from lots of perspectives and I, and I wasn't there and I don't know, but a lot of it comes down to the fact that actually they, they could execute making phones very well, but they couldn't execute other things well that were needed to move that business forwards. And that's, it's interesting, right? Because they were great at execution, but not great at execution in another sphere. So the, so those kind of things are things that, that mean that technology is never done you know, I mean, there's another famous phrase, and I forget which economist said it, but, you know, innovation destroys businesses. It doesn't create yeah. them, right? That's very true. And if you're going to be one of the ones that doesn't get destroyed by the disruptive innovation that a technology brings when it comes along, you really you really have to be on, on your guard and looking out. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's such a good point. And one of the things that, again, going back to your peer-to-peer article, because I think there were some really good snippets in there around innovation. One of the things that you wrote, whether you remember or not anymore, was around sort of disruptive innovation, how it can be a powerful force, but it's the idea of having those, you know, innovating in a new direction that can have unintended consequences. And actually going back to the merger that created Latera Microsystems from the Latera perspective, right, as a singular company as it was in that time, was that something that Latera wanted to do? Were you approached by the private equity company? What what was the vision, or was it sort of some sort of you know a mutual agreement? You know who who seeked out whom in order to sort of make that vision come true? How how did that come to be? Yeah, I th- I think I'm actually bound by confidentiality not to tell you that. <laughs> <This is> expected, <laughs> fair fair enough. One <laughs> thing I can I can clear I, I can talk about Latera strategy. I think one of the things when you especially when you're in a you know a founder led company or a, a startup, right? Mm. You know you were once you know some people in a in a garage inventing new stuff hoping to disrupt the world mm-hmm. right and therefore you have to assume that someone is doing that to you right mm-hmm. and so one of the things you might have the greatest product you might have bootstrapped a company one of the things that you always have to be conscious of is that you have to grow up right and at some point and you have to address other needs your customers have rather than just having the sexiest best technology so there was definitely that kind of thinking at Latera and that, you know, why I was brought in, for instance, right. to that organization, that you you can't be a startup forever. There's all sorts of views about how you want to make a company feel, mm-hmm. you know, do you want to be, how you want to feel internally and how do you treat your people? And that's a different thing, but you can't actually be a startup forever. And if you want to be successful and if you want to be, deliver on the promise to your customers, you know, you're always, I think that's something that I've lived with my whole career. You know, you've got to think about, your customers, they have needs that do involve how great you are at technology, but they also involve how great you are at meeting their, you know, servicing their needs, how great you are at supporting them after the fact, how sustainable your business are, you know, making sure it doesn't rest on the skills of one or two core people and things like that. So the the need as you get more customers to get more scale yourself isn't just a kind of egotistical, we're going to build a big company thing. It actually is something that sustains your relationships with your customers. So I think, you know, markets tend to reflect realities. And I do believe that, you know, the private equity market is very buoyant because there is a lot of innovation going on, but it needs to be, it needs to reach that sustainability point to be really valuable to society. And I'm not saying what we do is, critical to society by any means you know we make software for lawyers but it's a natural thing that people figure out what works 
in that kind of value mm-hmm. chain between suppliers and customers and their customers and so on. And and I think that drives these these transactions really more than anything. Yeah, and I mean, ultimately, lawyers have people as well. And I've, I've heard you say multiple times that, you know, the aim is to save people just, you know, a few minutes a day. And, you know, actually over time and across an organization that adds up to a significant, not in just not cost and time saving, but actually a change in culture and happiness, which something is, you know, that's become a more prominent topic, certainly in the legal profession over the, over the last couple of months. I think it's, yeah, I mean, you know, again, without at all pretending that we're trying <laughs> to save the world or even make the world a better place, although I hope we help with that. You know, there's the, yeah, I mean, I do, you've, you've heard me say it. I do, I do say to people, you know, you know, if we could save you 15 minutes a day or everyone in your organization 15 minutes a day on average, what's that worth, right? And it's not just worth money. You know, it means people might get home, yeah. see their families, on time more often they might have less stress in dealing with bills with their customers <laughs> because they're more understandable to their customers you know it's kind of a stressful thing to say to someone oh we actually spent 27 hours reviewing that two-page thing right so the there's a bunch of ancillary benefits and in fact one of the ones that i that always resonates with me because it's how i work is i think if you if you make things easy to do and another phrase i use is you know easy to do the right thing if you make it easy for people to do the mundane stuff that they need to do in their job that they just have to do then in the in especially with the people we're dealing with where they're really being asked to think to give their opinion and to give their advice if you can give people more time to do that and longer spells to do that then you can really improve you know, from a customer's point of view, the quality of what they do and hence the value of what they do. But I think you can also make people feel more fulfilled in what they do. And I think a lot of what we do with our software can do that if it's implemented well and and implementing it isn't that complicated. And if people really are willing to think about, you know, how they work a little bit individually to get maximum value from it, you can really you can really actually, you know, get closer to that kind of working environment that you want. And that does actually ultimately let you innovate more in your space, right. whatever that is. And I think I think that's a you know, something that that we a kind of slightly higher purpose that maybe mm. we are working And towards. obviously for the Terra Microsystems, that's all around the the document drafting lifecycle. So I have, I suppose, mm-hmm. a segue into almost the last section for us. Two questions. Would you help define for the audience what that means? Uh, because I'm pretty sure uh, not everyone's going to be familiar with what that means. And, uh, you know, after yeah. that, I actually want to touch upon how do you think that's going to get effective, uh, affected at, over time, right? What's the next steps, not just for the Terra Microsystems, actually, but the wider profession? Yeah, so the document drafting lifecycle is the process of producing a new document for a customer, typically, but it could be an internal document, a policy or something. And it involves going from either an old document you have or a virtual blank piece of paper through to a good first draft. And we have tools that help with that. Then you need to augment that first draft. And we're really we're really interested in documents that need human intervention that can't be just generated automatically. So you augment that with your experience, which you might have saved within tools that we also provide. And then you need to check it 
and we have tools that use what would get called AI these days. We used to call it natural language processing, part of AI, to analyze documents, make sure you don't make mistakes. Then you need to interact with other people with those documents. You need to understand how they're changing the content and changing the meaning. And so you go around an iterative loop there, and we have tools that help with that. And then finally, you need to kind of produce it and get it out there. And we do that too. And one of the things that is crucial through that whole process is our tools really focus on making it easy for you to work with the stuff you understand, the, the content, the text that you're working on. But in this day and age, that, that content, that text only exists in the context of other systems. It, you, know, you store it somewhere, you email it somewhere, you might have some AI system that's analyzing it, you might be printing it out. You might be getting someone to sign it through some electronic signature system. And we have to integrate with all of those systems for this workflow to be seamless. And then finally, we have to present that that end-to-end process and that integration in a way that makes it easy for you to do the right thing. Otherwise, you're hopping around from here, there, and everywhere, and we're actually being disruptive, not supportive of what you're trying to do. Hmm. And I mean, how, how do you think, and it's already evolved a little bit over the last few years, what, what do you see as you project either the trend or something completely disruptive, I suppose, into the future? What do you think will happen over the next coming years if you had to make a couple of predictions or what are your thoughts and feelings about the, you know, where things are going? Yeah, it's very interesting in our space, in the in the kind of you know knowledge worker space for in the broader sense. There's there's two technologies that are on everybody's lips. Mm-hmm. You know, there's AI in the broadest sense and blockchain, and they sometimes get sort of grouped together as the two inevitable Correct. things that you're going to have in your business somehow that are going to do things. And in that sense, they're both often talked about in in a way that's a bit not useful as kind of solutions. And then you're looking for the problem, right? I do think they're kind of different, actually. I think AI, and and in this case, I mean AI in terms of the kind of big data machine Mm. learning kind of AI that has already spawned several very successful companies, right? I think that will ultimately be ubiquitous. And I think the the way that's trending is to be not the thing that you do, i.e. you don't do AI. You actually have information and there are pieces of AI solutions that analyze it, assist human beings or make autonomous decisions around that information. But the, the best AI is going to be, I think, when it's truly disruptive, it's going to be when it's embedded rather than when it's a thing you go and Yeah, correct. Do I completely agree with that. I think it needs to be something that's, you know, more than just a product or a category to something that's an everyday thing that you almost really, if it's, you know, implemented well, you almost forget that it's AI, right? That's almost the success factor for it. Yeah, exactly. I think that's exactly right. And and mm-hmm. I think it will come in tiny ways. You know, you'll, you'll get self-leveling tables <laughs> or something like that, right? <laughs> or you'll get... Or you'll get, you know, or you, and it's all the way through to, you know, things that are accurately predicting the results of elections or something, which would be scary, right? So the, so the, anything in the middle, (laughs) there'll be a whole spectrum of things. Yeah. And everything, anything and everything in the middle and, and Mm. coming back, you know, bringing it back to legal and we're already seeing this, you know, we, we don't, we don't play in that space with specific technology, but what we're finding is that the, the people that do us, uh, not struggling, but can bring much more value if they integrate it with the sort of things we do know how to do. 
right? And we're very open to that. So the so the you know the ability to be working on a document and say, well, what other clauses have we used like this that actually ended up being in a court case mm-hmm. that was won, right? It's a very interesting question that is impossible to answer at the moment, but it's something that between a skilled human being and a and a computer with a lot of information, you can probably figure out, right? And and I think those kind of things where it's actually, as you say, almost just answering a question in a way that's natural in the moment is where AI is going to become, and it's not going to be taking over your job, not yet. At some point, there might be something totally disruptive which changes that. But in the kind of using it to augment what human beings do, yeah, and it's, it's so funny that you say that actually, because on an episode I recorded yesterday with the CIO of Blank Rome and the the administrator for a small small law firm, th- this topic came up exactly. And actually, those were my points. So I wonder if I'm biased because I stole that from you, or if we both heard it from the same source. But yeah, that that was my argument that you know it's it's more about augmentation yeah. rather than automation. And you know that that's especially for knowledge workers, that's the move that you're yeah. looking for because. You know, it will happen that parts of your job will get replaced by some sort of a smart agent. And it's about being able to accept that and understanding, you know, where your value as a knowledge worker, as you put it, lies and being able to embrace that change and say, perfect, all of all of the things that a machine is great at can be automated, right? And that could be crunching that huge stack of data, or it could be, doing some other sort of prediction or whatever whatever the use case is. And then for you to be able to translate that understanding and having that human human quality of understanding what your clients want, what the business needs, and interpreting and applying that data. I think that's really how things will turn out. You know, the timescale, who knows? But I think it's starting to happen as well already, right? And you mentioned the example of the court case and I think Lexis uh, released some yeah. press release last week where you know they're able to determine you know what kind of cases uh, especially from expert witness and a judge's perspective are affected by decisions and, and certain other factors that you know you wouldn't be able to do as a human being it'll be very very difficult at these and way too time consuming to be to make sense yeah exactly and i you know and hmm. the exact the court case examples are easy to give but it could just be you know which which clauses result in a contract getting agreed more quickly a corporate client would love that you know, I, I was actually talking to a, a, a corporate legal department recently, and they were they were saying what we would really love to know is, you know, we think we have a standard contract. We don't actually know which even which clauses get negotiated most often, and of the clauses that get negotiated most often, is there actually just another standard mm-hmm. form that they're all kind of homing in on, right? And you know, the best law firms have always had some sense of that, and they've tried to build on that using human beings and kind of experience. But that kind of thing is ripe for this kind of automation. You know, I have, I've sold 2 million cars this year, right? Which contracts with my dealers were non-standard and where were they non-standard and why were they non-standard? And should I just change my standard contract because I'm always agreeing to change X, Y, and Z. Yeah, and I think that's where technology can really come in helpful where you're kind of doing these post deal analysis where you have yeah. the data you have the results so you're not you're not asking a machine to guess and predict something for you you're essentially asking or 
ask is not the right word, but programming and configuring it to calculate patterns, right? To pick out the patterns so you can make changes. I think yeah, th- those are things where certainly AI or any other technology would you know, certainly outshine a human in, in due time. And that, that's one of the things that I keep oh. hearing more and more is human beings are really not very good at understanding exponential change. I think we can project out to 6, 12, 18 months into the future, seeing how things might change, but we can't really comprehend the exponential nature at which technology often evolves. And, you know, that's been the case time and time again. And I think you see the Nokia example, yeah. that's certainly one of them. And there's, there's countless others in the tech space. Yeah, and I think uh, exactly. And it's actually where I was going next. I was saying, you know, these all of these thoughts that we're having about AI now are kind of mainstream thinking. I like to think we're a little bit ahead, but as you say, we're not, <laughs> we're not 10 years ahead. <laughs> and, but, but 10 years will come. And in 10 years time, these thing, this thing might have disrupted things in a way we couldn't predict now. Yeah. And that's, and I think that comes back to something I believe very deeply. And, and as you know, I've been in industries where they've been disrupted. I was working in insurance when mm. online insurance became common, right? Which was a big change for them. The fact that first mover advantage, being that one, being that organization that has the radical new idea that actually is truly disruptive, is very powerful and can lead to real market dominance. I think you could say that Amazon potentially had first mover advantage in online retail, right? But it's not true that Apple had first mover advantage mm-hmm. in music devices, right? iPods. It's not true that they had first mover advantage in the smartphone. It's not true that IBM was the first person to come out with a personal computer, right? There's a hugely important thing. And I think for, for industries that are feeling threatened by innovation and disruption, there's some homework you can do. You might not have that disruptive idea because, as you said, we can't, as human beings, always see the future, right? No one has any right to know the future, in fact. But if you get really good at execution, then you can be a fast follower. So if you get really good at managing change, if you get really productive, if you give all of your people, as we were talking about before, more thinking time, you can really put organizations in a place where they can be the fast follower. And if you look through history, it's often the fast follower that's ultimately the most successful in the industry. That kind of positioning is something, you know, if I was in a law firm now or even in a corporate legal department, I'd be thinking long and hard about, is this organization healthy in an organizational sense and in a in a kind of execution sense so that when we do need to change it when those changes do surface and we see what they are we can be one of the ones that takes maximum advantage of them yeah and i think i think that complements well one of the things you mentioned earlier which is you know if you're looking at that spectrums but you know across keepers of tradition and early adopters you need to be somewhere in the middle of that maybe and, you know, if you're relatively yeah. brave, you might be on the early adopter side of things, yeah. but you need to have almost an XY axis where you're looking at how fast can I adopt these things? Because, and actually, I know plenty of law firms and a lot of CIOs, IT directors that in a new market internationally, they're like, we're not going to be your first customer, but we'll be very quick to become your second customer, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. I much rather prefer the yes. first customer, but there, there is a kernel of truth in that where you do have to keep that in mind, right? You want, because for some of them, they, you don't, if you don't know, if it's not proven, you do need to be able to validate that in some way. 
yeah, and looking at that in the mirror and looking at the seller side of that, you want to be the obvious choice, right? <laughs> and you can only be the obvious choice if you bring real value and it can be delivered, right? So you need you need to find those people that can actually implement the change as well. It's kind of interesting. There's a sort of, you know, we often think of buying and selling as a confrontational thing, but often there's a, there's a really good synergy between buyers and sellers mm-hmm. where those those relatively early adopters, you know, they're not the first, who are probably are taking a bit of a risk, but the ones that see the value know they can implement it. They actually do well themselves, but they also are great for the supplier, right? Because uh, they validate the proposition that the suppliers put forward. Yeah, correct. I know we're coming up to time. So I suppose in summing up, what would you, if you had one ask for leaders in law firms in the legal profession, other than sort of being uh, better embracing or being accepting of change, being able to adopt faster and sooner, maybe, what would you ask of them? How could they prepare themselves for this? Wow. Preparing for the future is a bit like wishing for Christmas when you're a turkey. <laughs> but the, but the, I, think, I think the thing that I'd really go back to that, you know, make sure that you're creating space for people to be aware, right? To be aware of how things are changing. And bizarrely, I, I strongly believe, as I said, that, the, you know, that involves actually making people very good at what they do now so that they do have that mental capacity to look at what's coming. So really help people to be great at what they do now and get them in a place where they're open to change because they'll see that change if they're great at what they do now. Perfect. And the last thing, if people wanted to find out more about you or Latera Microsystems, what's the best place for them to do that? Well, then go to our website, Latera.com, www.latera.com. And it's a great place to start. And we have other resources there, which are kind of our resources that give back to the community, like the Changing Lawyer. But they can certainly find me there and get in touch with me and you, Abba. <laughs> and plenty of people who have lots of experience in this sector who can talk to them, which is always the best way to start. Wonderful. Well, Paul, thank you so much. I appreciate your time. And yeah, this was a whole lot of fun for me. Yeah, it was great, Ab, and it's a really good name you have for this. I love the I love the name of the podcast series. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Fringe Legal Podcast. Before you go, I have a huge favor to ask you. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving a review on iTunes. It'll take less than a minute and really helps others find the podcast. Meanwhile, you can find the show notes and resources from the episode on our website at podcast.fringelegal.com. That's podcast.fringelegal.com. See you next time.